Amen. Thank you, Amy. Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. We're going to study the Word today and worship the Lord through His Word reading and applying that. But if you've got little ones through grade four and you'd like them to be in a graded service, age-appropriate service in church time, you can release them right now. Follow their teachers out the door. You see those adults that are with them. We'd love to have you have your little ones down there or keep them with you, whatever you prefer. For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. God's plans for a healthy church, a study through the first and second books of First Corinthians. Conduct of the church, particularly, is what we're talking about. Spiritual gifts, the more excellent way. Dear Keith, I've been unable to sleep ever since I broke our engagement. Won't you forgive and forget? Your absence leaves a void nobody else can ever fill. I love you, I love you, I love you. You're adoring Tiffany. P.S. Congratulations on winning the Powerball $38 million lottery. It's not advancing. John, if you could make that advance with the click. If uh, you're new with us this morning, we're in the middle of a section of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth that has to do with spiritual gifts. And in this very specific and important instruction to the church, he is carried along by the Holy Spirit to demonstrate the importance of love as the key ingredient in effective ministry for the church. We're taking our time through this section. It is extremely important. I would propose to you, uh, I think as we kind of wrap up this section today, that perhaps there's a whole list of priorities for the church that aren't included in most church growth books, but that would probably supplant most of the things that you would find in there, and I think that we're studying them right now. This very specific and important instruction to the church, he's carried along by the Holy Spirit to demonstrate the importance of love as the key ingredient. And as we've been able to note, biblical love is not a feeling. It's not motivated by what someone can do for you. It's based on the will, a determination based on in the power of the Holy Spirit, at work through the Word of God, dwelling in you richly, which will change your thought patterns so that you can respond in obedience to the Lord's commands and thus really minister effectively to one another. Did you catch that? It is a determination of your will based in the power of the Holy Spirit, so it's not some self-righteous determination. You're not going to wake up one morning after you've been treating people a certain way and decide today is the day I'm going to change everything and love everybody. Listen, this is a determination of your will based in the power of the Holy Spirit at work through the Word of God, which is dwelling in you richly, which will change your thought patterns so that you can respond in obedience to the Lord's commands and then really minister effectively to one another. So it's a volitional response that's going to say, Holy Spirit, control me today. I yield to you. Take over my life. I want Christ to live through me. And that pattern has brought about or will bring about a significant change in your behavior. But many believers, as we ended with last time, if they're really truthful are still operating in the flesh, in the church, because these attributes of love are not part of their life. Like this kid from this true story from Warden Burns' book, Baseball and Illustrated History. It's about Yankee great Mickey Mantle. This is a guy who hit 536 career home runs, 17th overall. He batted 300 on more than 10 times. He's a career leader, tied with Jim Tomey, walk-off home runs. Combined 13, 12 in the regular season, one in postseason. But on this uncharacteristically awful afternoon in the 1950s, Mantle struck out three times in a row and was pretty down. Mantle's quoted in the book 
as saying, when I got back to the clubhouse, I just sat down on my stool, held my head in my hands like I was going to cry. I heard someone come up to me, and it was Tommy Barra, Yogi's son, standing there next to me. He tapped me on the knee, nice and softly, and I figured he was going to say something nice to me like, you keep hanging in there, or, or something like that. Well, all he did was look at me, and then he said in his little kid voice, you stink. <laughs> now, that's how a lot of believers work. But that's not how love works. Now, the first three chapters, uh, verses of chapter 3, really deal with the outcome of the use of spiritual gifts functioning in the absence of love. We're still now. We're still like, there we go. Thank you. And we saw, regardless of what gifts you have and to what extent you have them, if they function without love, you can do nothing, you are nothing, and you'll have nothing to show for your efforts. That's a summary of the first three verses. You can do nothing. You are nothing, and you're going to have nothing, regardless of what gifts. And Paul uses superlative in those first three verses. So the best of all those gifts, the maximum way that you could possibly express them. Then he gets to verses 4 through 7, and I'll just give you a short review because that's just kind of pull this all together as we finish this section out. Paul looks at the situation where love is present. First two sections show love from the positive, and so we can see how serious it is. This is what love does. This is what love looks like. Patience and kindness, then, are those first two And they are key actions at the core of love's expression, patience and kindness. And then starting in the middle of verse 4, we see that uh, what love looks like when it's it's active from a negative perspective. So in other words, verse 4 says, love is not jealous. So love is presented as a subject. It indicates a person, as we said, and you are that person. So you can read your name in the place of love and then understand that to the fullest meaning. Kurt is not jealous. Jim is not jealous. Dan is not jealous. Dan does not brag. Mike does not hold, is not arrogant. That's the way that you're to read this. And then these next eight things that love doesn't do are precisely then, as we remember, the things that the Corinthian church was doing. Now, beginning in the middle of verse 4, all the way through verse 6, Paul lists eight actions love doesn't do. Verse 4 says, look there with me in your copy of God's word, is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant. And we just said, you know, where jealousy wants what someone else has, which love doesn't do, bragging tries to make someone else want what you have, and love doesn't do that either, and arrogance is the idea of haughtiness, or just puffing up the differences between people. And so Paul says there's no room in the life of a believer for that behavior. That's in the absence of love, that will be there. So you can have all the best gifts to the fullest extent, but if your actions are the actions of jealousy and bragging and arrogance, then your work adds up to nothing. Then we saw last time in verse 5, Love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, we ended with those last time, and they are very important, because I think if the church does uh, find some of these things in action in their life that love doesn't do, these really are the meat of those things. All these things that love doesn't do, you can read your name before each one. Love does not act unbecomingly. Again, the verb is in the present active indicative, as are most of these. More than 20,000 commands in the New Testament are in this same present active indicative. And this could be called behavior ugliness. A number of translations have love is not rude, and that would certainly be inside the definition. Whatever answer, in other words, whatever conduct, whatever demeanor, whatever bearing, whatever appearance, reaction, whatever, that would be considered rude for the situation, love doesn't do that. The word's based in the, word, in the root word, schema, which is, is uh, from our, where we get our English word scheme. So the form, it's the word, the form of a person. How it's all set up, how the person is set up, which would include 
Everything a person is which strikes the senses, the figure, the bearing, the discourse, the actions, the manner of life, etc. In all those things, there should be anything dishonorable, indecent, disgraceful, inappropriate in their actions. Because love does not act unbecomingly. And the observation covers a wide range of unseemliness. There's another word that applies there. So if I'm, do, if I'm going to be useful for the kingdom then, I won't act unbecomingly. Whatever that is, whatever is unbecoming of the situation, I won't act like that. And there'll be evidence, because if I'm acting like that, that's evidence the fruit of the Spirit is absent. Now the next one was, love does not seek its own. So love isn't self-centered, we saw last time. It doesn't try to figure out how to get its own way. It's not trying to demand something from someone else. And this took us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul's teaching on the responsibilities inside our freedom in Christ. Uh, From the positive side, love is looking out for, becoming aware of, and acting on what's good for others. Love is not provoked. There's the next one. Present passive indicative. And that passive voice we said, just so that you remember, is the subject being acted on by an outside force. So put yourself in this statement and ask yourself these questions. Am I easily aggravated? Do I have a short fuse? Am I exasperated quickly? Because if the answer to that is yes, that's the opposite of patience. Patience and long-suffering is where love lives. A quick temper, easily provoked, love is absent. So, remember this. Love can rule out what gets on your nerves by patience. And love can overrule your fleshly fleshly reactions because love isn't easily provoked. So both of those things take care of your hot temper and your quick response. So if I'm going to be useful for the kingdom then, and just make this your own question to yourself, if I'm going to be useful for the kingdom, then I won't be touchy, I'm not going to be able to be provoked, otherwise that'll be the evidence that the fruit of the Spirit is absent and what I'm doing amounts to nothing. There's a wonderful parallel passage from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. It goes quite a bit further, and it says this, So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Those are very familiar words to us, aren't they? We looked at some of them already. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. So in other words, someone's going to offend you. Someone will hurt your feelings. No matter what, no matter what happens inside the church, that for sure is probably going to happen. And then it says this, whoever has a complaint against anyone, so that takes in a really wide swath, that takes in everything else that you may kind of add up there and put in the back of your mind. If you have a complaint against anyone about anything, and then here's the bar, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And so love is forgiving, isn't it? That's how it gets over these things. And then this last part of verse 5, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And that word take into account is the word reckon. It's the same word we see as the Lord reckons righteousness to us. It's a matter of keeping a list It's a matter of uh, clicking off the things that are for our good for the Lord. But for us, love doesn't keep a record of wrong. It means that we're not checking off things and remembering things that people did to us so that we can bring them back later. Love doesn't do that. It doesn't keep accounts. It doesn't make mental notes. So when love is present then, it doesn't keep an account of all the wrong things people do. And if you put your name here, then, listen, beloved, it doesn't matter what you think you can do in the church. If you're holding on to offenses and hurts and slights and whatever, love is absent. And then what you're doing accounts for nothing. And you're building then with wood, hay, and straw instead of gold, silver, and costly stone. Now, the eighth activity of love, an indicator that love is present, presented from the negative, really is this last one, verse 6. Right at the beginning of verse 6, it says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. In other words, Paul says, when love is there, it takes no joy in evil of any kind. But we can 
be doing that through coarse joking. We can do that with what we watch. We can do that with what we read. We can take delight in wickedness all over the place. But love supplants all of those things. And love supplants holding on to hurts and following up with every offense. And love replaces a short fuse with patience and long-suffering. And love sees others, not ourselves, and what works best for them. And love isn't rude, either by accident or intentionally. And love cares about what other people think, see? That's what needs to be going on inside the church. And now, by contrast, these eight attitudes or actions that love is not or does not do, Paul now provides five positive expressions of love. And four of them are strengthened by the word all. So as we read them, as we read the attribute of love, realize all goes in there too. So whatever happens to flow in to the meaning of that word, that's included. Okay? Look at the first one. Love rejoices with the truth. And that would seem to be just obvious. Right? I mean, it would seem like we'd want to rejoice with the truth. It follows the previous one, so they're joined together somewhat, and the idea could be expressed like this. Love shares truth's joy. So from the other side, it cannot rejoice when truth is denied. So it's not rejoicing in wickedness. And that, of course, connects it with the first statement of verse 6. Love doesn't rejoice in what offends the Lord. So it just kind of strengthens the whole idea of what love does and doesn't do. It doesn't rejoice in what offends God. Love shares the joy of morality. Love shares the joy of, of righteousness. It shares the joy of the gospel. It shares the joy of the truth of God, whatever it may be. Does that mark your life? Do you share the joy of those things? Because if it does, love is there. See, Remember 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all things, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers calypte. That's present act and indicative. Love covers. It means to cover or to hide or hinder the knowledge of a thing. It's the... Catch this, beloved. It's the reality of the believer's life all day, every day. Love covers a multitude. That's the word plethos. It just means the full measure or the full extent of sins. So love isn't looking to spill the beans, in other words. Love isn't looking to embarrass someone. Okay? Love isn't parading around a bunch of things. When it shares truth joy, it doesn't mean to go against what 1 Peter 4, 8 says. It isn't keeping note of offenses. It isn't rude either. So rejoicing in the truth isn't the same as being rude to an unbeliever, okay? And rejoicing in the truth isn't isn't the same as exposing another believer's faults. That's not rejoicing in the truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, it's a great illustration. As Paul's talking to the church, he says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, in immorality and sensuality. He says, verse 21, But if indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him, Just as truth is in Jesus. Okay, there you go. So the truth of the gospel is in Jesus. The truth of sin, of course, of the curse, of redemption, the truth of God himself, the truth of life, the truth of purpose. We rejoice in that truth. That's all the things we rejoice in. That, verse 22, that truth, that's what he's talking about. And then Paul sums up salvation. He says, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. So that would be the truth of confession and repentance. You recognized your old self, what it was like, because the Holy Spirit empowered you to do that, and you set that aside. And verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's the change brought about by salvation in the thought processes. That's how you begin to do things differently and react differently. Verse 24, and put on the new self. That's the change wrought by salvation, which changes behavior. That's the real you, the new reality, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to one another, 
each of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So we rejoice in the truth, we don't rejoice in unrighteousness, we're transformed by the truth, and that truth is our joy, and we speak the same truth to one another. That's the idea. See, So Paul kind of puts it into play there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. And that's the, exactly the idea summed up earlier uh, in the Holy Spirit's model for the church in verses 14 and 15 of the same chapter. And, and we see this, as a result, we're no longer to be children... So, as a result of salvation, a result of transformation, we're not to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, there we go, it's always in love, always, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So now we know what truth isn't. It isn't parading about somebody else's list of faults. It isn't remembering all those things. It isn't looking to spill the beans. It isn't looking to embarrass someone. It shares truth's joy. Jesus Christ is the truth, and in him is the gospel. We rejoice in those kinds of things. We take our delight there, and we don't take our delight in anything that dishonors the Lord. Now let's look at the second positive expression of love. Look at the beginning of verse 7 there in your copy of God's Word, if you would. Love bears all things. Now, again, and I don't want to be sounding like a broken record, but here, here's the thing. Put your name here in the place of love. Love's personified. You're the person. And bears is from the Greek present active indicative verb stego. The root word has to do with the roof of a house. It has to do with the thatching that shields and protects those who are underneath. And so that's the idea. Now, The idea of bearing is this idea of covering to keep off something which threatens. So love does not give way easily. So in that respect, it endures. But it's not that word endures because we're going to see that in just a minute. But in that respect, it keeps those things off. Anything that would harm. So it means a covering. Something conceals. Something protects. And in that way, it goes right along with Peter that we just read uh, in uh, in 1 Peter 4.8 where love covers, but he uses a different uh, verb, calypte. It covers a multitude of sins. So here, love conceals what's displeasing in 1 Peter 4, 8. Love dece- it, it conceals and doesn't drag out in the hard light of public scrutiny all that somebody has done. It doesn't do that. It's not a history lesson. Love's not there when the history lesson comes out, guys and ladies in your marriage. So it could mean that, and Peter has certainly been carried along by the Holy Spirit to indicate this is the action of biblical love, which is to cover a multitude of sin. But it's likely here that the Holy Spirit is probably giving us another of love's attributes, which is a little bit different from this one. And it's to bear up, to be a shelter from difficult things, shielding others from difficult things. In the case of the root word, the weather or time or harsh conditions, to hold out against, to, uh, to bear, to forbear. So the roof is put on. It doesn't fall down easily. The action is strengthened by the word all. So whatever beats down on it, whatever the situation is, however difficult it may be, Love bears all. It's not easily defeated. And the present tense will be a current, continuous, habitual attitude and lifestyle of bearing. And the active voice indicates that you are initiating this action, self-sacrificing action of bearing up under hard times. The indicative mood is the reality. This is the reality of your life. This is indicative, if you will, of your life. You bear long. And just a quick example. Paul himself had to exercise this action of love towards the Corinthian church. He uses the same word, and he says it in 1 Corinthians 9, 11, where Paul's making the case for the church to support those who minister to her. And, of course, he's talking about himself and how he ministered in Corinth without being uh, having his needs met by them. And he says this, If we sowed spiritual things in you, 
Is it too much if we reap material things from you? And, of course, the rhetorical answer is no. (coughs) If others share the right over you, do we not more? And the rhetorical answer is yes. Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we, here's our word, endure. And really, the better translation is bear, because it's the word stegomen. So we bear all things. That's hardship created by the need. Uh, the sin there, that sin issue in the church that was created, that it created by itself because it's, it's uh, not meeting Paul's needs. So he shields them, if you will. He bears those things. Instead of putting them on the church, he bears those things on him. So we bear all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So in order not to impede the gospel proclamation from Corinth, even though he's in need and he has the right to have his needs met, he gives up the right and he bears up. That's the idea. And love does this, see? It doesn't easily fall down. I know people like that, don't you? And you know what, men? You should be this in your marriage. You should be this. Your wife should not have to endure all the things that you know about that need to be taken care of. You can bear that. Did you know that? And parents, we can do that for our kids. They don't have to know everything about what's going on in our culture and our society at every age. Bearing and shielding people keeps them from having to bear it themselves, see? And love does that. Love expresses itself that way. It bears up. People who bear long in difficult relationships and difficult circumstances and in uh, personal trials, love is there when you're doing that. Let's look at the third positive expression of love. And you can see why we're taking time with this, beloved. There is more here than just a marriage verse that you read quickly at the end of a service. I would say that this is the priority for the church because it it circumvents everything. It is in priority, the priority position before all exercises of spiritual gifts. Love believes all things. And believes is a Greek verb, pistuo. It is a word that we're very familiar with. It is a word that we have in the gospel. It is the same word from Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes, pistuo, in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, pistis, is credited to him as righteousness. So it's related to the noun faith in root form with the addition of the idea of trust. So we have this essence of Paul's emphasis on this expression of love, and that's why some versions have always trust. So you may have that in your, in your copy of God's word. Believes all things or always trusts. There's certainly that idea here. I think that's more limited. I think believes all things is a better way to, to uh, translate it. It doesn't mean that love is gullible. Because remember, love shares true joy. So love's not gullible. Love's not believing things that aren't true. And so the idea here is that love and action is always ready to allow for... Catch this, beloved. It's always ready to allow for circumstances and see the best in other people. That's what that means. Love and action is always ready to have confidence in, to always be ready and geared up to accept as true the best possible scenario. That's what love does. Always ready to give the benefit of the doubt. And believes all things points to the scope of that type of faith. In every situation, ready to allow for circumstances and see the best in other people. Love believes all things. That is, it tries to put the best possible construction on every action or every event. See? It's a volitional response, beloved, that is going to say, Holy Spirit, control me today. Take over my life. I want Christ to live through me. And time in the Word will be 
there and begin to change the thought processes. And then the fruit of love will be there to be applied in your service to others. So instead of thinking the worst of an event or a situation, see, you're thinking about the best possible scenario. And this fruit of the Spirit, catch this, this fruit of the Spirit, love, which is expressed in believing all things, is the indicating factor that you're spiritual. Not necessarily what appear to be the gifts of the Spirit that you might be exercising. Okay? Ask yourself this question. If I'm going to be useful for the kingdom, what will the evidence of this fruit of the Spirit in my life be like? And here it will be looking for the best possible outcome. Our fourth positive expression of love is found in the next one. Love hopes all things. Some versions have always hopes. Hopes from, again, present active indicative verb, apidzo. Here's some ways it can be applied. It's the forward look. It's the forward look. It's not unreasoned optimism. Really, it's It's a reality that you understand is based on grace. The same type of future reality that you enjoy because of grace at work in your life, that you know that the Lord's at work in you, and that you're not finished yet, you're not a finished product, but there's more to come, see. That's the same adoption, that same attitude as the Lord looks at you, is the way we look at other people. Love hopes all things. It's a refusal to take failure as final or long-term past action as the way it's going to be in the future. See, Love hopes. We see the same word in a lot of places. This, this particular one is one of my favorite verses. 1 Timothy 4.10 says this. It says, For in this, for it is for this we labor, copio men, that's work to weariness, that's present active indicative, and we strive, Agonizometha, that's where we get our word in English word, agonize. It's for this that we labor and strive, has to do with fighting against an adversary or competing with great effort. It's for this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our, mark this, hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. See, it's the forward look. It's the reason why you keep going. It's the reason why in the ministry, because this is written to Timothy, in the ministry you just keep on slugging away. You keep going after it. Why? It's for this reason we labor and strive. Because we have fixed our hope on the living God. That it's not always going to be this way. That someday it's all going to be done. And you'll be done and be able to rest from your labor and all the effort that you put in will be worthwhile. And as you translate that into your ministry, realize that that is the actual reality of your life. And that's how God deals with you. And that's how we're supposed to deal with other people. It's a reminder of the finish line, if you will, or the prize, or the rest, and the enjoyment of the labor. It's a motivation to move forward towards the future. See, love hopes all things. On the road to Emmaus, listen to uh, some of Jesus' disciples speak, and you can kind of hear the hope that's there. It's kind of fading, and, and as you understand what the word means, you can kind of see where they are. Perhaps you, rec- you recognize kind of this uh, waffling back and forth between hope and just... Uh, resignation to how it is now. Luke twenty four seventeen says, and he said to them, Jesus is walking along, they don't recognize him. What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? Just some of his disciples, they don't, they don't recognize who he is. He shielded his, his, uh, the recognition from them. And they stood still and, and looking and said, uh, one of them named 
Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the, of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people. Verse 20. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Mark this. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. But hope is fading, isn't it? Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. In other words, it's getting kind of long. He's dead and he hasn't come back. And we were hoping he was going to redeem Israel. And then they say this, verse 22. But also, some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And the hope is still there. So he's like, it's, you can see it kind of in the background. See? So ask yourself some questions so that you can know if, if your work is producing eternal results as you think about hope. And here it is. Am I an Eeyore? I know it's sunny, but it'll probably rain later. I know he looks like he's changed, but he probably hasn't changed. And we're just going to go right back to like it was before. Love is absent, beloved. Okay? That's not reality. You understand? Do I let my perspective of realism, and I say it that way uh, on purpose, shadow my optimism, shadow the hopes all things? Because if love is there, then we're always going to have hope. And beloved, I know, sometimes it seems like a really long line of hope. Really long. Especially if you're thinking about family who don't know the Christ and have rejected Christ, I don't want you to talk about Christ anymore with them. And you think about friends uh, who you witnessed to or who have fallen into sin, and you just think, you know, you're quick to just go ahead and, okay, the final result is, I mean, they're headed for hell or whatever, see. No, hope's all things, see. It's a really long line of hope, and it's strengthened by the word all. So if love is there, then self-sacrificing hope is your reality. In the end of verse 7, we find our fifth positive expression of love. Look there. Love endures all things. That's the compound verb, hupomeno. And really, the two words, literal translation is abide with. Hope abides, or or, uh, love abides with. And it's strengthened by the word all. 1 Corinthians 4.11 gives us the sense of it when Paul says this, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty, He says, we're poorly clothed, and we are roughly treated, and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we, mark this, endure. We abide with it, Paul says. So the idea, then, of endures all things certainly would include sticking it out in persecution in difficult times. I mean, I think that we automatically connect it with it, but it's not always that. A little more general in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 6, he says this. He says, um, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance. That's a lot of persevering. There's our, there's our word. Of course, this is not a passage the word of faith people use too much because here sticking with it isn't very good company for that group. Okay, So, in everything, committing ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, 
in beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger and purity. And here's a few we recognize again from our list in knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and genuine love. So it is sticking it out in all of those things. Certainly it includes um, what would we, we consider persecution, but it also includes um, enduring or sticking it out or abiding with purity, abiding with knowledge and patience, abiding in kindness, abiding, of course, in the Holy Spirit as you're in the Word each day, and genuine love, of course, and that comes right back down to our foundation, doesn't it? So it appears the best way to understand this attribute of love is that love isn't overwhelmed by any of those things. See, love endures. And perhaps the idea is like this. You know, because of our adversary, mark this, beloved, and because of sin, there's always going to be circumstances and there's always going to be people in the present church age to bear with and believe and hope and endure. There's always going to be that. Because of sin... Because of our adversary, there's always going to be people and there's always going to be circumstances in the church age to bear up under or to shield people from, to believe and to hope and to endure. And there will always be opportunities to disregard wrong, see, and rejoice with the truth and to habitually do acts of kindness and react in patience. There's always going to be chances for that because of our adversary, because of sin. There's always going to be circumstances and people where you're going to have opportunities to disregard wrong and cover up a multitude of whatever it is against you and forgive whatever offense there is, see, and rejoice with the truth and habitually do acts of kindness and react in patience. And clearly, love with these actions will require decision-making and effort on your part, okay? They're, They're not feelings. They're not emotions. The Lord doesn't say feel warm and fuzzy towards this person or towards this circumstance, these are self-sacrificing acts of will that are not intuitive. This is not how you're going to react in the flesh. But resources are there for you to act in this way as the word dwells in you richly. See, And again, Paul does not rehash the bad behavior of the church. He doesn't you know, point out their critical spirit and how they assume the worst in each other. He doesn't say, this is what you do. He's already said that. He's gone through it. And now he's just saying, okay, stick your name in here church at Corinth and modern church and just say, okay, if I'm going to be effective for the kingdom, these things have to be true. Are they true? Is this how I react to people and circumstances? Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears up like a strong roof. Love believes the best in a situation. It has a long line of hope that looks forward to the future because grace is greater and love just endures. It isn't overwhelmed. And these are all in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Why do we get these? Well, because God is a redeemer. And these are the ways he deals with his own. And where sin increased, grace increased all the more, didn't it? And God is looking, always looking forward to a positive outcome. It's not his will that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of repentance. He's always looking for a positive outcome, isn't he? And providing that uh, that way for that outcome. Romans 5, 3. Not only this, Paul says, but we exalt in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about, here's our word, perseverance, that's the noun form of our word, endures, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. See, when we see these things, we have a forward look, don't we? When we see the tribulation that brings about perseverance, And proven character, because you're sticking with it, 
And then we have a forward look, don't we? Because it produces hope. God's at work in us. He's bringing us to perfection. And all the little uh, victories that you have as you look at your life and you compare it to what we just read, and you say, okay, I'm, miss- I'm missing. I've got some gaps here. In fact, I'm the opposite of this. I react angrily quickly. Or I hold a whole long record of wrong. And I, list- I remember it for years, and I can't wait to bring it up when I get the chance. Or whatever it is, see? When you see that, but then you see you have a victory over those things and you leave a very enticing thing unsaid because that is not love and you're not going to do it and you want to obey the Lord, see? That gives you hope, doesn't it? Because you realize the Lord's at work in you and he's looking long term and he's bringing you to perfection. Verse 5, and, and does not disappoint. Hope doesn't disappoint. Why? Because the hope is based on a reality that the Lord will perfect you, right? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us, God's self-sacrificing love for our good has been poured into you, and you're allowed to give it out then, see? Philippians 1.6, For I'm confident of this very thing, that what? He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God looks at you in a positional sense and says you're holy. And from a practical sense, he is making you that way with your thought life and with your actions and reactions. Isn't that great? And God's always looking that direction. And so he tells us to be exactly the same way to one another. And that just follows, doesn't it? Otherwise, we're a bunch of hypocrites. We get forgiveness from God all day, every day, but we don't offer it to anybody else. And we get grace, and we love to stand in it, and the greater our sin, the greater the grace, but we don't give it out to anybody. See, that's the opposite of how it's supposed to work in the church. And there's a whole bunch of things that you can list, and I've read tons of books about all the organization you need. You know, I would say that this supersedes all of that, but you don't find many books on this if you're talking about building a church that the Lord is happy with, see. And that's why we're taking time with this. God's a redeemer, and he's at work producing the person you're to be. And he endures, and he's kind, and he's patient. So those qualities, along with all the others, are to be at work in us, see? And Paul says, it doesn't matter if you can speak with every tongue and with the authority of an angel. And it doesn't matter if you know everything there is to know spiritually and theologically, and you have epic faith in God's power. And it doesn't matter if you give all your possessions to the offering and you die as a martyr, if you're not acting in patience, and if you're not making a habit of doing kind, good things, even to people who don't deserve it, or if you're jealous, or you're proud, or you brag, or you're rude, or you're self-centered, it doesn't matter if your spiritual gifts are epic. If you aren't bearing the spiritual fruit of love and reigning in your anger and letting go of your lists of wrongs people have done to you, if you're not rejoicing in the truth and bearing long and believing the best and enduring whatever comes along, then all that other stuff doesn't mean anything and it accomplishes nothing and you're nothing. See, and that's Paul's emphasis. And so that break between chapter 12 and chapter 14 where he gives the priority of the spirit and says, this is what I want done to the church and these are your spiritual gifts, but this is how it's got to work. It's super important. And I love this stuff. It's very objective. I mean, you don't really have to have any illustrations. I can just read it. And you can just say, okay, do I do that? I mean, we don't need to. This is really straightforward. And maybe as we go through, you'll probably say with me and a lot of others in this room, sometimes I'm doing well on some of these things and other times, not so much. But the Lord looks at you and he builds you and he's got hope for the future. Why? Because you have a sure hope. He's changing you minute by minute, day by day as you're in the word. See? And consistency then is what we're after, isn't it? And consistency will be the cumulative result of the process 
of sanctification. That's where that's going to find. And you're going to find that consistency, that where your reactions begin to change. You can always tell your spirituality, beloved, if you just, what's your first reaction? Okay, and you don't even have to tell anybody. You can just kind of go back through the last week. What was your first reaction? What did you want to do first when something happened? When some situation or some person who was irritating to you did something, what was the first reaction you wanted to have with them? See? Because that tells you where you are in the process here. And now you know how to pray, now you know how to read the Word and how to study and meditate on it, don't you? So that those thoughts and actions can change. Because these are not pie in the sky, you know, the extra spiritual Christians, they are the ones that get this. This is present, active, indicative. This is the reality of the believer's life. This is what's to be going on. See? Let's pray, if you would. Bow with me. Father, I thank you today for uh, your clear word to us about love. We spent some time here, and next week we'll, we'll move on to some of the things that are going to end and all of that and, and uh, kind of cap this off as Paul does as he relates it back to spiritual gifts and what's going to go on in the church and transitions into chapter 14 where we see the priority of the Spirit and all the things that shouldn't be going on that are and how Paul corrects that. But here we just look at these, these characteristics of love, what love's supposed to look like. This is, and love is that, that base foundation on which everything else is done, Lord. So we thank you for your clear teaching. We're beginning to see what you're after. We're so used to glossing over this passage and using it as, as um, an inspirational passage for uh, a marriage or whatever. Help us to see all these qualities, even if they're slightly or mostly obscured by the power of the flesh in our life. Help us to see them at least enough to see what they're like. And help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh and begin to do the actions of love that we might be the church and the families and the individuals you desire us to be. That we can be recognized as Jesus' disciples. By this, your son said, will all men know that you're my disciple if you love one another? And Father, you can start right now. And beloved, you can start now by just telling the Lord, I submit myself to your will. I want to do what you want me to do. And you have put one very important thing ahead of all the gifts you have given. And that thing is spiritual fruit, which I will bear as your Holy Spirit is allowed to function through my life based on my time in your word. That's what I want, Lord. And my, my desire to align myself and my will with your will is what I desire to do, and I know you desire that for me. And I pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.